Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's complimentary webinar focused on tracking two key risks, U.S. equities and China. This is going to be presented by Dr. Lev Bardofsky, the Chief Risk Officer of Star Mountain Capital, and uh, Lev is also the editor of the Wall Street Journal's The Daily Shot. My name is John Polis, and I'm the Chief Operating and Technology Officer for your webinar host, Star Mountain Capital. We are a specialized asset management firm focused on investing in the large and underserved U.S. lower middle market of companies with typically under $15 million of EBITDA. Uh, our differentiated business model includes a custom-built media and technology platform, bringing proven large market resources to smaller businesses as a value-added lender and investment partner. Before I do hand over the reins to Lev, I did want to let you know that your audio is muted and will be for the entirety of the presentation. Also, as a disclaimer, I wanted to note that nothing presented in this webinar or in any of the webinar materials we will be sending you constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase by Star Mountain Capital interest in any investment product. We have allocated time. Uh, at the end of the presentation for Q&A, if you do have any questions, please type them into the Q&A chat box of your WebEx client. We will try to get to as many questions as possible before our time is up. Now about our presenter, uh, Lev Bordovsky has over 20 years of experience covering private equity risk management and operations. He was a founding member, chief risk officer, and managing director of the GSO Blackstone platform, one of the most successful global and loan investment platforms. Currently, Lev is the chief risk officer at Star Mountain, and he's also the editor of The Daily Shot, a chart-based newsletter covering select global economic and market trends that is now part of uh, the Wall Street Journal. Lev, this is our, I think this is our fifth or sixth webinar today. We're excited that you're here today. Why are we starting at 2.15 as opposed to 2 o'clock as, as per normal? We're starting because the Fed just raised rates, so we wanted to um, um, take a look at what actually happened um, and uh, maybe have a little chat about that as well. Great, great. So looking forward to this presentation as always. Very good. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, so before we get started, uh, again, uh, the, the Federal Reserve just raised rates. Um, and this is the third rate hike this year. Uh, the, 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 not, a lot of, not a lot of surprises this rate hike was fully expected. Um, the, uh, the, if you look at kind of the projections from the FOMC, uh, again, no, no major surprises. Uh, we do know that the, the market fully expects a fourth hike this year uh, in December. In fact, uh, uh, here's the uh, probability, market-based probability of another rate hike, the fourth rate hike uh, this year, and, that, and it is uh, sort of, uh, it's, it's been above 70% for, for some time. So this, this year we're looking at four rate hikes, and so the question becomes, you know, what happens next year? You know, if this if this pace of rate increases continues, um, that's going to have a material impact on um, the economy and the markets. Uh, so let's proceed with the with the presentation. Um, just take a step back. I've been asked a lot, you know, what types of things I'm seeing that that are top of mind. What are the, what are the things that analysts, um, strategists, investors are concerned about? And, and obviously, there's a laundry list of things, but you know, there are two issues that that people want to learn more about and and get a feel for. One is, you know, we're in the midst of the longest bull market in in, in the U.S. Uh, equity markets. The, it's the longest bull market in history. Um, and the question is, you know, what what makes it um, vulnerable? What are the things that uh, uh, keep keep strategists uh, awake at night? Um, you know. Uh, what what could trigger a the next sell off? Uh, and and some and, and, and you know some people ask when when could that happen potentially? So that's that's kind of the 
key theme, number one. And, and number two, what signals are we getting from China? Um, there's, um, there's talk of a slowdown there. Um, there is, but, but so far there's no evidence that the economy uh, is, is cratering. Um, the, the, the reason why people worry about China is that it's not just that, um, you know, we could have, it's a, you know, one of the largest economies in the world. It is that a slowdown in China will reverberate globally um, and will we'll ultimately end up back in the U.S., meaning that it's not, a, it's not an isolated effect. It's not like the U.S. can continue to grow in isolation, whereas, you know, if China really um, has, a, has a, um, a significant downturn. Uh, it, it's uh, the global economy is interconnected and uh, far more now than it has been in a long time. And so it's not one of these things that can be ignored. So we'll talk a little bit about the mixed signals coming from China. So let's let's start with what keeps um, U.S. equity strategies awake at night. Uh, you know, when they look at this market, what are the indicators that, that make them nervous? And, and again, as, as a reminder, I, I'm not going to be – I don't want to spook anybody uh, about their investments or or I'm not saying, you know, sell sell your positions or anything like that. Um, in fact, I've been constructive on the U.S. stock market for some time. Uh, the issue is I'm hearing from a lot of analysts, a lot of researchers, and what it, it, this, this is sort of a laundry list of w what I'm hearing from them that, that makes them uneasy. So let's start with valuations. Um, no matter what measure you use, U.S. stocks are not cheap. Um, you know, whereas you use trailing P, forward P, uh, price to book, price to sales, U.S. shares are not cheap. Um, the question is, um, is the is is the market stretched, and and there's debate about that. There's there's still a lot of bullish uh, investors out there who think that um, the market is is by no means overpriced and um, and has more more room to go. I mean, one indicator that stands out is the S and P 500 price to sales ratio, uh, which which has reached the uh, kind of the the highs of the of the the, the highs of pre-dot-com bubble burst. Um, so that's one, one indicator that makes people a little bit uneasy. But if you, if you look at sort of the regular forward-looking price-to-earnings ratio of 17, um, you know, it's, it's, again, not cheap, but it's, it's, not, it's not outrageous by any stretch. You know, the market surprised, and this surprised a lot of people, uh, the market continues to, you know, brush aside the, uh, the escalating trade war. Um, this, this people sort of think, oh, okay, well, we had, some, we had some tariffs and nothing happened, so what's the big deal? Well, the tariffs we had so far are, are only a, um, a small portion of what's coming, right? Um, so in, in uh, at the end of the year, we're going to have the the latest 200 billion of Chinese imports. Uh, the tariffs will go from 10 percent to 25 percent, and then there's threat of, a, of an additional, uh, basically, the rest of of uh, Chinese uh, imports get hit with with additional tariffs, and so we're going to be hitting all of China's uh, imports. With significant tariffs, um, I don't know if you, if, so if, if you if you live in Middle America like I do in Pennsylvania, and you go to a um, a local store um, like a Dollar General, probably ninety percent of stuff sold there comes from China. Uh, so you know we're going to see price increases and 
potentially spook the consumer, uh, which could have all sorts of uh, nasty implications for, for the economy. By the way, this chart on the right is uh, got a, an estimate from uh, um, Oxford Economics as to what will happen next year in a, in a full-blown uh, trade war scenario in terms of um, um, the impact on the GDP growth. As I said earlier, the uh, you know we have the the 200 billion uh, tariffs that went up, um, and and that's if you look at what kinds of products that that constitutes, um, a lot of it is sort of capital products, machinery, equipment, and intermediate products. Uh, only a portion of that, and, and that's this this chart here. Only, only a portion of that, it's around two, is cons cons consumer products. That, that last round, which is going to hit the rest of the imports from China, that's called round three, um, that's going to slam cons all consumer products from phones to TVs to uh, you know, clothing and, and furniture and things like that, that that consumers buy. And so that will have a real impact. But so far, the markets either assume that this will be avoided, uh, which I'm not convinced it will be, um, or uh, they, they don't believe it's going to have a, a, a material impact on uh, on earnings, which, which, again, is hard to imagine. Of course, we saw the Fed hike rates, um, but it's, it's not just the short-term rates that are rising. I mean, you can see on the left side here uh, the, the two-year uh, Treasury Treasury bond yield, you know, continues to hit highest levels in years. Um, but it's not just that. On the right side is the um, 30-year mortgage rate. Which is which had a seven-year high, I think, uh, this week, um, and you know that sort of four point seven percent thirty-year mortgage is, is still not bad, uh, but consider the fact that um, house prices are have risen pretty quickly and continue to rise at, at sort of six percent a year nationally, um, and. So home price increases have definitely outpaced wages, uh, and and now you smack them with a high mortgage rates. It's um, it, it could have a, a a pretty negative impact on the on the housing market. Here, here's a here's an example of what the stock market is already seeing. In, just related to interest rates in, in the housing market. Uh, this is a, this is an index of U.S. Uh, home builders, um, and uh, in blue, and, and the red one is the uh, S&P 500. And you can see the sharp underperformance of of the housing market, which I view often as a kind of a leading indicator for um, for the economy. And um, so the market is saying, you know, it, investors are nervous about what's going what's to happen in the housing market. And, you know, could, that, could this have broader implications for, uh, for the stock market? You know, remains to be seen. It's, it's interesting because people said, well, you know, higher rates uh, should boost uh, um, bank shares because as rates rise, the uh, interest margin for banks improves, and and that's been the case kind of earlier on, but now with this big spike in, in mortgages, for example, um, higher rates on credit cards and, and other sort of consumer debt, uh, some people are concerned that even though margins are improving, the demand for loans could slow down, and, and so you could have a um, 
the banking sector could underperform as well, um, and which it has been doing somewhat already. And uh, again, I, the banking sector is often a, a leading indicator for, for other sectors, especially in the downturn. So the other issue about rising interest rates is it, it makes um, cash much more competitive. I mean, your, your one-month Treasury bill is, uh, you know, is over 2% now, right? Um, and so if you put money in a Treasury money market account, you're going to outperform the dividend yield in the, of the S&P 500, which is the left chart, right? So these higher, higher stock prices and higher treasury yields make cash increasingly more attractive. Um, and by cash, I mean a short-term treasuries, like a treasury money market fund. So you're basically taking no risk and getting a 2% or you get less from a dividend yield in, in, in the S&P 500 and taking a lot of risk. Now, of course, people don't buy the S&P 500 for dividend yield, they buy it for uh, earnings uh, growth. And, um, and if you look at the earnings yield, which is kind of the equivalent of, uh, you know, assuming that you, you were receiving those earnings, uh, what would be the yield of the S&P 500? Uh, that's obviously still higher than cash, but that differential has been um, has been shrinking. And so, at some point, uh, some investors in the fringe will start saying, "You know what? I, I like I like cash more," and and it could result in a rotation out of the stock market. So we're starting to see the effects of the uh, of the of the tax uh, cut uh, coming out of the um, coming out of the earnings uh, universe, right? So uh, for the first time in a while, we're seeing um, a lot more um, companies. Um, Basically, saying that, that you know, saying that potentially could have um, their earnings could could um, uh, decline, moderate, um, and and so this so you have you know, the bottom left chart, the red one shows there are more companies sending out uh, issuing negative uh, earnings per share guidance, and fewer companies issuing in the upper left. Fewer companies issuing uh, positive earnings per share um, guidance, and and so the companies are sending a message to say, look, you know this this growth that in earnings that we had, which is a lot of it, which is tax driven, is is not sustainable, and they're they're saying, you know, this this is this is not gonna it's not gonna last. I mean, you, again, uh, let me step back and say to be sure that earnings that US companies earnings and growth has been tremendous and it probably will continue to be but there's companies are sending a, a caution message to to the market and on on the right side you see the uh, analysts uh, equity analysts and this is a consensus estimate for uh, for the for the uh, fiscal uh, 2018 uh, earnings per share are starting to um, um, moderate some of their uh, earnings projections. So, so we can see some of these signals in in the market saying, you know, this this party is probably going to last, but it's not going to be as festive, right? That, so that's kind of a way to describe it. Other analysts are concerned that the breadth of this market um, has been has been pretty narrow. So, so if you look at this chart, you see that um, 
20% of the return has been attributed to top 10 companies, uh, and that's pretty high. Uh, so it's the top 10 companies in the S&P 500 that, that drive performance, um, and, that, and that, again, makes people nervous. If you have a hiccup in, in Apple or something like that, uh, you, you could have a, a significant impact the overall stock market. So another reason why the stock market in the U.S. rallied despite the sell-off abroad is uh, investors thought, well, the U.S. is the safest place because uh, the, the economy is less impacted by trade, so in the case of a trade war, the U.S. is the best place to be, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that the, the U.S. market will continue to rally. It just means that relative to the rest of the world, it's the best place to be. And, and interestingly enough, um, this rotation out of the rest of the world into the U.S., what was what drove the kind of the recent leg of the rally um, where people saying, well, I'm going to take money out of emerging markets, I'm going to take money out of Europe because I'm concerned that uh, tr the trade war will hit both harder than it will hit the U.S., so the U.S. looks better on a relative basis, and so, uh, you know, people rotated into the U.S. Um, and you can see the uh, fund flows, the top chart shows fund flows into the U.S. The next one is into uh, developed markets, ex-U.S., and the last one is in, you know, emerging markets. And you can see outflows out of the rest of the world into the U.S. Question is, A, is it sustainable? And B, does it, does it necessarily mean that the, the U.S. market may continue to outperform the rest of the world? It doesn't mean it, 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 will, it will continue to rally. The other reason why we've had such a strong market this, this year has to do with uh, buybacks, uh, share buybacks by companies uh, who use their tax breaks, um, ta tax reductions, to, um, to pay off investors, right? And so uh, buying back shares has been the, the uh, most common way to pay back investors, and and that's that's driven um, that contributed to the rally this year. So this chart shows um, announcements and actual buybacks, and 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 that's been uh, at, at spiked to um, record levels. Again, the question is, is this sustainable? Again, because of the rotation from the rest of the world, um, the U.S. market has outperformed most major asset classes. If you look at um, what uh, other asset classes have done this year, um, you know, whether it's, you know, starting from the left, you know, emerging markets uh, took a hit, gold, um, you know, the um, developed markets, Ex-U.S. emerging market debt, corporate debt, um, high yield is up actually a little bit, but uh, other corporate debt is not. Treasuries are down, and so the U.S. market stands out um, as as the outperformer. And again, some analysts question whether this is sustainable. For those who, who like technical analysis, the, the, the technicals for the S&P 500 don't look great either. We're kind of at the uh, upper boundary of this channel, 
that we've had uh, for a couple of years um, that's been sustained. And so the question is, you know, can we, will we break above that upper boundary? Uh, can we stay at the upper boundary? Um, and, and so uh, technicians are concerned that this, this is going to drop lower, at least to go to the, to the middle of, the, uh, of this channel. I, I think, to me, the biggest concern is the complacency that's, that's set in this market. Um, and yeah, I've seen other analysts sort of describe this as well. And you can see this in, in multiple areas. Um, there's a couple of examples here. So, um, if you look at the chart on the left, it compares the, um, the two indices from Goldman Sachs, one that, that tracks companies that spend a lot on cap, capital expenditures and research and development, and the other one that, that basically does stock buybacks and dividends, right? And you can see kind of in recent months, the, the total return index, which focuses on buybacks, has been outperforming. So investors are, are just focused on sort of short-term um, total return, meaning that companies that do buybacks and dividends, they're really not concerned as much about longer-term companies' um, growth. Um, and so they're, they're um, rewarding CEOs for uh, returning cash to investors rather than investing in companies' growth. Um, and that, to me, that's an indication of kind of short-term focus on the markets. It's hot money basically looking for short-term gains rather than long-term investors. So that's the chart on the left. Um, chart on the right, sort of same thing, two indices from uh, Goldman Sachs. One tracks companies in the S&P 500 with weak balance sheets and the other one with strong balance sheets, right? And uh, for a while, when we had uh, kind of some nervousness in the market, uh, companies with, with stronger balance sheets about performed, that's the red line. And, uh, but now you see companies with weak balance sheets that are more leveraged and potentially provide better return, you know, if, if, um, earnings improve. Um, so weak balance sheet companies have been outperforming recently. And so again, it, it, investors are less focused on uh, what, on the, on the kind of longer term risk and more focused on can they, can I get a, a boost from leveraged companies? The operating leverage can, can boost earnings. Okay. So these two are kind of subtle um, measures, but, but to me they indicate uh, aggressiveness in the market, um, increased risk appetite, focus on short-term uh, gains, um, and a little bit of a kind of hot money flows uh, into certain companies. Other areas where we see complacency in in the stock market are um, things like hedge funds. If you look at uh, long short hedge funds, are pretty long the market. Um, they uh, they were very long the market, um, sort of record levels long the market going into this year, the beginning of the year. Then we had the uh, uh, you know, volatility blow up, and they they went, you know, more into neutral territory as a result. But now they're back, right? And so long-term equity hedge funds are leaning much longer uh, is an indicator of um, increased risk appetite and, and maybe complacency. 
we see similar trends for mutual funds and risk parity funds and, and, and other other types of um, uh, sort of speculative or uh, fast money in investors. The chart on the right shows the speculative positions or, or um, non-commercial positions in VIX futures. Uh, so VIX futures uh, um, track uh, the implied volatility in S&P 500. And so it shows that these accounts were very short uh, volatility going into this year. And then as we discussed in, in the previous couple of um, uh, webinars, the, the, we had a volatility blow up in, in uh, early this year and, and it basically uh, blew up uh, a lot of these short positions in, in volatility. Why do people go short volatility? Well, because it's a, it's a positive carry trade. So if you short volatility and it decays, uh, so, you know, it's basically like shorting options. You short an option, if it never goes in the money, you, you own the premium. So as time goes on and the option is not in the money, its premium decays and, and you, you collect that, that, that premium. And, and so with volatility, people short VIX to, um, to collect that carry, that decay, um, but they obviously risk a, a spike in volatility, um, which would, ha would happen in, in January. Well, now they're back, right? They're, these, um, these short positions are back, and, and speculative accounts are, are shorting volatility again. And again, it's it becoming pretty lucrative, right? Because you just sit there and and um, collect your your carry um, as VIX futures roll down the curve, effectively. Um, and and that's an indication to me of. Uh, increased risk appetite and and some complacency. Okay, so so we spoke about kind of the the issues that I'm seeing uh, from other analysts um, in the stock market and and what what are the concerns and and, and I do want to say that. Uh, overall, again, I'm, I'm still constructive on the stock market in the U.S., but uh, there, there are these rising concerns to think about. Um, so let's turn to China, and it's obviously related to the U.S. stock market because these are the, the two economies and the world economy is pretty interconnected. Um, and the, there are obviously risks to the U.S. stock market from from China. As a, just as an example, um, when uh, in 2016, when China had a sharp devaluation, the U.S. stock market sold off rapidly. And, and so if, if you see some sort of an event like that again in China, um, you could have an impact on, on the stock market. So far, the recent devaluation uh, of, of China's currency did not impact uh, the stock market in the U.S. negatively. Um, and, and people sort of think, oh, okay, so maybe we can ignore that. Um, but there's, there's other considerations. All right, so mixed signals from China. You know, there's debate about the trajectory of, of China's economy. Uh, this, these charts are from World Economics and for September showing what's going on in the uh, manufacturing sector. Um, they survey sales managers at, at uh, China's factories to see if things are improving, uh, getting worse, um, and how they view their, their part of the market, uh, how they view sales, and so on. And if you look at um, these charts, the upper right is, is a particular concern. It shows that um, business confidence in China has deteriorated quite dramatically. Um, 
and, and there, there are obviously concerns about growth in the manufacturing sector in general. Some of that, um, some would say a lot of that has to do with uh, the um, U.S. tariffs and, and generally a slowdown in, in global trade. So, um, so these indicators, you know, make one pause uh, and, and think about what, what's really going on with China's economy. So this chart is from Goldman Sachs, and it shows um, what they call the current activity indicator. Um, and, and it's a kind of a real-time measure of economic activity in China. Um, so so this, this indicator doesn't have to wait for the official GDP figures uh, and, and, and provide a you know, tracking mechanism for what you know what's going on more in real time. It already shows a, a bit of a, a bit of a slowdown in the economy. Nothing, nothing dramatic. Nothing like we've seen in in 2016. Uh, but uh, but there is a slowdown. So analysts are. Um, Stock analysts are starting to downgrade uh, China's uh, corporate earnings, um, and again, you know, still very high growth in corporate earnings, uh, double digits, but not nearly what we saw at the peak. All right. At the peak, you know, corporate earnings were expected to to be in the 30s as far as year-to-year year-to-year um, earnings growth, and that's coming off pretty pretty sharply. Uh, again, not not a, a no losses here. We're not seeing a uh, again a 2016 scenario, uh, but it, it, it's off the highs. And then we have some other surveys from China that they don't look bad at all. Um, so this one is from a company called the China Beige Book, and and it, it, it does surveys of um, companies across China on a quarterly basis uh, to to see things like um, you know sales and, and profit direction and and capital expenditures. And, and what they're saying, okay, you know, in this quarter, there's a little bit of a, of a slowdown in um, earnings and, and sales uh, growth. But um, it's not dramatic at all. Uh, it's just that, you know, what looks like a small fluctuation. Uh, so there's nothing to really worry about. Moreover, if you look at the chart on the right, the capital expenditure uh, trend uh, continues to improve. So, according, at least according to this analysis, uh, CapEx in China keeps improving, keeps getting better. So companies are, are investing in uh, equipment, factories, um, you know, machinery, and, and so on. Uh, so, uh, which is, uh, you know, a very positive indicator for China. Overall, if you think about the investment process at the national level, uh, there's a fixed asset investment. And by fixed asset investment, people mean things like, you know, buildings and, and roads and bridges and, and so on. Um, you have a kind of a, a diverging trend. The fiscal stimulus, the, the government stimulus, um, where government funded all these massive projects, uh, you know, infra, especially infrastructure projects, that slowed down dramatically. In fact, it's stalled. Um, it's not growing anymore. 
still there, it's just not growing anymore. Uh, and so you can see that the big spike in, in 2016 um, in um, fixed asset investment, which is when Beijing said, okay, it's time to stimulate the economy uh, using, um, you know, fiscal measures, meaning government spending. Um, and you had, you had that spike. Um, and, uh, and that stabilized the economy and then, and then they kind of pulled back from that. Um, and so you see that that's slowing. But um, private investment growth is stabilized. You know, it's just sort of below 10%, but it, it seems to be stable. That's, a, that's the, dashed, the, the dashed line on the, um, uh, on the left chart. The right chart shows where the uh, the money is um, going for interest for um, fixed asset investment, and you see kind of a slowdown in infrastructure, uh, a, a um, growth, a, a contraction in uh, real estate and construction growth, um, but um, manufacturing um, expenditures. For infrastructure expenditures continue to improve, and 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 that takes you back to actually the the previous slide where you see capital expenditures improving. So this is consistent with the red line on the on the right side here, uh, showing that manufacturing fixed asset investment, or people building you know factories and facilities and so on, are is is actually accelerating. So there's no, this doesn't show us a, a significant pullback in, in, in private activity, private investment at all. What concerns a lot of economists out there uh, about China is the slowdown in credit growth. So last year, Beijing, the, the uh, central bank, uh, PBOC, um, started tightening and, and has tightened policy quite a bit in order to rein in all the, all the leverage. So China's been, the private sector's been becoming very levered, levered. In particular, uh, there's a lot of leverage in um, what they call shadow banking or, or uh, financing using uh, non-bank uh, sources, and uh, and so the central bank started curtailing that and tightening, um, raising rates and tightening um, the, the monetary policy, which um, is resulted in, in a slowdown in, in credit growth. And as this chart shows that uh, uh, the economic activity in China is highly correlated with credit growth. It's, it's, it's become a credit-driven economy. And so the question is, you know, will this continue to slow? So this particular chart doesn't bode well for, for the economy going forward. However, in recent months, the central bank started easing. We saw them uh, cut the... Uh, Triple R, the, the reserve ratios for banks, we saw them inject um, uh, liquidity into uh, lending markets, lowering the interbank lending rates without officially announcing, you know, the rate cuts. They basically went ahead and, and created rate cuts by introducing liquidity. Uh, with China Central Bank, it's not as much of what they say as, as what they do. Right, because their communication is just terrible. Um, and so they, they've been easing quite a bit, right? And part of the easing is due to um, the, the, the tariff threat, right? They view the tariff threat as, um, uh, as having a significant uh, drag on, on growth. And so they're like, you know, less time to ease, right? Time to ease policy. The, the decline in, in the yuan it was one of the 
uh, aspects of easing is, you know, lower current, lower weaker currencies is helpful for the manufacturing and export sector. But they don't want to let that go too far because uh, a weak currency is is uh, has other negative implications for for the for the corporate sector. Uh, some some corporations borrowed in dollars and. You know, when the yuan declines, those those um, dollar liabilities become bigger in you know when translating into domestic currency. So so they don't want the currency to fall too much, uh, but they are easing and they continue to to maintain easier uh, monetary policy. Now, nonetheless, uh, they they're still trying to, to pressure. The uh, what they call shadow banking sector, right? So if you look at growth in um, shadow banking or non-banking finance, they're encouraging um, corporate bonds. Uh, they're also encouraging municipal bonds or, or local local government bonds, which is a, a whole other topic. But they're discouraging other types of um, uh, financing that that increases leverage, and you can see the uh, decline in growth or, or um, contraction in, in the overall volume of these types of products. But this monitor easing um, that they've they've undertaken recently is expected to. Um, Turn uh, boost credit again, increase lending, and and there are signs that we're already seeing this that lending's picked up, um, and and so it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act for the central bank. They they want to discourage leverage, but they they also don't want to um, you know squeeze the economy by by snuffing out credit. And, and so it's a bit of a balancing act how, how they want to do it. But right now their goal is to encourage lending, especially to smaller enterprises and so on. In fact, the People's Bank of China is undertaking what the European Central Bank called um, targeted LTRO, um, you know, basically a, a way to uh, encourage uh, financial, financial institutions, banks and so on, to land into the um, small business sector or, or um, middle market businesses. And, and based on that, um, the analysts and economists expect basically monetary conditions to, to push um, credit um, higher, right? So, what they call credit impulse um, is expected to rise or improve going forward. And this is, these two charts are from two separate institutions. One is from Goldman, and the other one is from Oxford Economics, and they're both basically saying, look, you know, uh, this uh, monetary easing that, that's been taking place should boost credit, and as it boosts credit, it, it, it will stabilize the economy. Of course, you know the biggest uncertainty is this trade. If we're going to look at, if we're looking at a, you know, 25% uh, tariff on 200 billion of Chinese exports to the U.S. plus, you know, the rest of the uh, um, Chinese ex Chinese um, trade with the U.S. getting hit with tariffs as well, there isn't a whole lot the central bank can do to. Um, Stave off the um, the slowdown. It, the, the slowdown will uh, will happen, but they will obviously keep easing uh, to um, cushion this this downturn. So if if this this kind of worst case scenario plays out, this chart shows you know significant shock to the uh, economy of China, economic growth especially next year and in, in 2020, 
All right, so these are not immediate effects. Uh, this is not going to happen overnight. The slowdown will will happen over a couple of years, and, and it could be significant. And, and that this is the biggest kind of concern right now. And and obviously, Beijing is is well aware of this and is looking for uh, to open alternative trade trade avenues, uh, improve domestic demand. Um, and it ease monetary policy um, to um, to cushion this this correction. So we're also worth noting that you know this the shock is not limited to China or to the U.S. Um, it, in this global economy, you see you know obviously something like Hong Kong getting hit, but also you'll see an impact in the eurozone and Japan. Uh, a sort of secondary effects um, due to the, uh, um, the this trade war escalation of the trade war. Uh, so that that those remain those are the concerns. So once again, I just want to reiterate: there is no evidence of a, a major slowdown in China. There, there's some. Uh, it's the the growth isn't as vibrant, but it, it it's it's there. It's you know it's still growing faster than the U.S. And uh, for now, um, the risks, the immediate risks, are, are relatively low. The issue is what happens next year or the year after. So that's it for the presentation. I just want to close by uh, saying here are the various organizations that. Um, whose charts been used in this presentation. I just want to thank them for their contribution to this. And uh, finally, one note, uh, people interested in the Daily Shot, this is um, uh, where to find um, and how to sign up for the letter. All right, I think we're all set. Great, Lev, uh, let's, uh, we're, we're gonna open up some questions. Um, so, so continuing on that last slide that you did, Slide 29 on uh, uh, on the impact of, of tariffs on China. Um, be, besides what you mentioned, what are some of the other impacts or effects of our tariffs on China over time? Yeah. So. The, the, yeah. Obviously, they'll, they'll have to rethink. Um, their dependence on um, exports, and, and they have been pushing it. That's not easy for them to do. Uh, the economy is still there's certain regions of China that are completely depend on exports, and and so that there'll be a rethink there. But you know, the, in the end, they'll be looking for other markets, and what will, will end up happening is. That this bilateral bilateral tariffs are not always effective because China will just shift um, production potentially to other areas like Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, or or elsewhere, and um, or, or, or basically use those other locations and countries to move its its product uh, to ultimately get it into the U.S. And the end result in the U.S. will, you know, the consumer will pay more for the product, but they will be able to get the product to the U.S. through other channels. And and so the the goal will be to reshuffle the supply lines and, and change uh, the flow of product uh, so that you know Chinese products gets to the U.S. through some other ways. Mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of the major impact of of the tariffs. Sure, and then and then circling back to the chart where you showed that investment in U.S. manufacturing had not has not been impacted. Is that partially a result of the Chinese trade policy? So far, um, manufacturing investment um, has been um, continues to to get uh, to get new new money. Some of it could be momentum, right? 
these factories are saying, okay, if we if we just take last year's growth and we want to repeat that, we're going to need, you know, two new facilities. Okay, let's invest in two new facilities. Um, but so so far they're just they're just ignoring the uh, kind of potential slowdown and finding potentially thinking we'll find a way to get product into the U.S. Um, it's it's puzzling actually. It's it's puzzling that they there hasn't been a more um, cautious reaction to to what's going on. Um, China still holds an interesting card in that it owns so much U.S. debt. Has how does that factor into all of this? It's a good question. Um, you know, will China weaponize its its treasury holdings, right? And if you look at the media, uh, they, there's a lot of hype about this. Oh, they're going to start dumping treasuries. Um, you know, so, so China has two, two kind of two monetary levers against the U.S. treasuries and, and the currency. And it, you know, the currency we already talked about this. Where they can they can they can weaken the currency, which they have already, and, and it will help them uh, to mitigate the tariffs. Basically, let's, if you have a 10% tariff and the currency falls by 10%, the tariff is, is not doesn't do anything, right? It's, it's offset. Um, but they're, they're, they're very concerned about the currency depreciation because of other issues. The weaker currency uh, in, for China will create a concern for, for borrowers and foreign currency. Again, so if you're a company, your 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 statement your financial statement is in yuan right but you borrow dollars and and so when you show your liability on your financial statement you take the amount of dollars you borrowed translate them into yuan and show that as your liability now imagine the yuan is down 10% right so now your liability is all of a sudden up by 10% and, and your financial statements, you know, your balance sheet gets gets out of whack, and, and you look like you're bankrupt. It, it, you know, so so people worry about depreciation and yuan impacting, um, you know, the the non-dollar debt um, borrowers. Mm -hmm. But going back to treasuries, it's a similar issue. So if you uh, it, it, China has foreign reserves in dollars, right? So basically the central bank holds, you know, a massive amount of, of, of dollars, trillions of dollars, right? Um, what do they do with those? They have to hold them. They have to keep dollars there. What do they do with them? Um, you know, to reserve like, like any, any central bank has foreign currency reserves. You can you can put them in, in a U.S. bank and keep them in, 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 a, in a deposit account, which is not safe, and nobody wants to do that. You can um, you can buy other U.S. assets with 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 that, uh, but you, you're really the only choice is to to put it in treasuries, unless you want to buy U.S. corporate bonds, which obviously the Chinese central bank doesn't want to do. It doesn't want to take any risk, right? So, so what do you what do you do with that cash? It, it, it's it's not like a household where I can go and sell sell bonds and, and buy something else. They 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 are forced to to hold these dollars, and and so what do they do with those dollars? They, they have no choice but to buy treasuries. The only thing they could possibly do is shorten the shorten the maturity of their treasury holdings, meaning uh, sell the longer dated. The longer dated treasuries and buy shorter dated like bills, but their their average maturity is already like four years or something like so they're already pretty short. So, you know, if they want to steepen the U.S. yield curve and punish, you know, U.S. mortgage borrowers, uh, there's there's not much room for there's not much they can do to to accomplish that. Uh, uh, you know, the roll from from their five year uh, notes to two year notes. Yeah, it will have a marginal impact on the treasury market, but not that dramatic. So weaponizing treasuries is is, is a little bit overblown by the media. Okay. Um, circling back to the beginning of, of your presentation, and also I think back to our last webinar, uh, you know, what catalysts 
could trigger a U.S. equity sell-off and, and you know, we spoke about this last uh, last webinar. You know, how long will the bull market continue? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I keep getting those questions and they keep popping up, uh, you know, among all the, all the analysts. So what what's kind of the immediate things that that could um, that could trigger a, um, a, a sharp sell-off in in the in the stock market? Uh, one is you know we got the elections coming up. Um, let's just assume, for example, a an unlikely but a non-zero chance scenario that um, the Democrats take the House and the Senate. Right um, now, all of a sudden, you have the risk of um, serious confrontation, a constitutional confrontation. Uh, between the Trump administration and, and Congress. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying it could lead to impeachment, but the, the risk of that is, is now rises, right? And so all of a sudden you could have a, um, a, a sharp sell-off in the market, for example. I, again, the probability of that is, is relatively low, but, um, you know, it, it's, it could become a, uh, you know, one of the risks. There are other risks, for example, a, a conflict in the Middle East uh, pushing oil prices through the roof, uh, where gasoline prices climb and the consumer pulls back, right? Um, you know, you could have a sort of related to, you know, a political, political issue where you have another a form of constitutional crisis where um, there's some, another some sort of threat to the Trump administration, and that that could spook the market. Um, and you know, there, there's plenty now. Obviously, rates is is kind of the big one now. Um, it, but the Fed has been pretty clear about its um, it, its tr rate trajectory, very transparent. So I think the market is relatively calm that they won't see any surprises. But if all of a sudden we see a spike in inflation, for example, in the next couple of months, and the market starts thinking, you know, rather than pricing in one or two rate hikes next year, now we'll have to price four, mm. uh, that will send the market lower. Sure. So these are some of the things that, that kind of people, people worry about. Sure, and and related to that, um, and our, this is our last question. Circling back to our last webinar, where you spent so much time discussing uh, volatility of the dollar. So we've seen some changes since then in the dollar. It stopped rising, right? It's leveled off. Um, yeah. so can you provide some commentary on on that at, at this point in time? Yeah, it, it's uh, it, people are wondering why the dollar hasn't risen further. If you look at the broad-based dollar, um, meaning not just against um, kind of the developed market currencies, but but against all the trading partners, it, it's it continued to continues to kind of creep up, right? It's trending higher. In fact, the dollar has risen quite dramatically against Asian currencies. Um, so, you know, with regard to, to developed markets, there's question as to why it, it hasn't climbed uh, yeah. as much as people thought. And, and one of the reasons is people are thinking, well, rates are probably starting to going to start to rise elsewhere in the world, right? You see, uh, the Canada and the UK, um, you know, raising rates, uh, and even the um, you, you saw. Norwegian central bank hike rates, for example, recently, and then you have um, the European Central Bank is going to end its uh, quantitative easing by the end of the year, um, and and so if you if you have higher inflation in in the in the eurozone, for example, and a more aggressive um, European Central Bank, and it doesn't take much, you, you know, you, the dollar could fall. Um, and, and so that's why people are not as, uh, as uh, you know, bullish on, on the dollars as they may be. But if you look at it in general, speculative accounts still believe that the dollar has, has ways to go. Uh, so this is just a pause. Uh, and so, you know, hedge funds are, are net long the dollar. 
And so, you know, people still believe it will continue to rally. All right. Um, I think that's all the questions that we have. Lev, the, these hours are always great. We appreciate the time that you put into this. Uh, the, the audience, our, our, our audience uh, is always very uh, thankful for it. Um, for, those, for those who, uh, who signed in, thank you very much for joining us. Should anyone have any further questions or feedback, please feel free to email them to us at webinars at starmountaincapital.com. We will be emailing everybody who, uh, who signed in today, tomorrow, with a, uh, um, a PDF of, Web's, of Lev's slides, uh, along with a link to the replay of, of, of this webinar as well. Uh, until next time, we, uh, we do look forward to you joining us again for future educational webinars. Lev, thank you. Thank, thanks, everybody, and enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks.